I want to talk a little bit about the practice of devotion. And one of the things that's traditional in uh, a traditional way that we express respect for the teaching is actually when a teaching is being given to sit up. <laughs> and I appreciate that many of you have been doing a lot of meditation and you're unfamiliar with this and the body's experiencing some discomfort and I know some of you have health conditions and you've asked to lie down and that's okay but if you feel that you kind of you can manage to sit up for half an hour I'm just going to talk for about half an hour um, that would be a nice way to just uh, show some respect for the teachings and also just you know, for your own effort, actually, in this. <coughs> and we've been getting quite a lot of notes also with questions, which is good to see that you're engaged, but sometimes there's even more notes than we can manage to respond to. So just to say that tomorrow evening, we will have, um, instead of a talk, we'll have a question and answer session. So you can bring questions there as well as to the groups. You'll, you'll have a chance to meet again um, in small groups over the next couple of days. Um, and also, if your questions particularly pertain to after the end of the retreat, there'll also be a chance at the end of the retreat on the closing morning um, or possibly the evening before to, for us to respond to those kinds of questions. But one question that did come in today, which I thought is really, you know, totally relevant and in the ballpark of what we want to talk to is quite a question about um, how, how do we access the feeling or the experience of devotion? You know, we've talked about kind of practices, outward forms of doing it, why we might, why we might express devotion. We t said this retreat was about devotional practices. How do we kind of tune into that feeling or where do we evoke it from if it's not something that's naturally arising? Uh, I wanted to share a poem it's from the Palestinian-American poet Naomi Shihab Nye and it's called Shoulders. She says, a man crosses the street in rain stepping gently, looking two times north and south, because his son is asleep on his shoulder. No car must splash him, no car drive too near to his shadow. This man carries the world's most sensitive cargo, but he's not marked. Nowhere does his jacket say fragile, handle with care. His ear fills up with breathing. He hears the hum of a boy's dream deep inside him. So maybe you can put your shoes, yourself in the shoes of that father and sense the kind of care and reverence for life that this poem is pointing to and expressing. And maybe something of the wonder. And we naturally feel that towards 
young children often or towards young animals that we see, young, uh, the young and the vulnerable and towards the delicate, towards the beautiful and also towards the awe-inspiring. If you think of your response to a beautiful flower or a beautiful sunset or sunrise, there's this kind of natural reverence for life that arises and a sense of wonder and a sense of care. And it's something that all of us, or nearly all of us, you'd ha you have to be pretty um, afflicted not to feel this, a, a capable of feeling in moments. Yeah. And I was thinking about the, um, the, the image from the Christian tradition of the Magi coming to venerate the, the infant Christ or the baby Jesus. And you have these you know, men who are powerful or highly regarded intellectuals and they come to, uh, well, they didn't have intellectuals in those days, that wasn't a concept, but the equivalent of, and they come to venerate this, you know, kind of small, vulnerable uh, human being. And in that there's a kind of sense of humility, isn't there? And maybe there's also a flavour of, of gratitude and appreciation so you know, there's maybe when we, we, maybe you've had that experience yourself with your own, the wonder of becoming a parent. It's not something I've personally tasted, but the wonder of becoming a parent. There's just this marvel and gratitude to life that uh, it, it does this wonderful thing of renewing itself. And when we feel grateful, that sense of, Again, that sense of uh, reverence, yeah, maybe that, that starts to emerge. And when we think about um, the gratitude to particular, to teachings or to teachers, this is, a, this is one of the places that reverence towards these, these refuges of the Buddha Dharma Sangha arises for us when we actually recognize, oh, the Dharma has really brought something into my life. You know, we maybe have had a time when uh, the, a teaching or a teacher or uh, it doesn't have to be the Dhamma, an act of kindness or an act of generosity has really touched us and brought us something. And then there's a response in us. And that response of gratitude and appreciation can have a flavor of devotion to it. These are, these are kind of just, you know, flavors within the experience of devotion that I'm trying to point to. And you can see which ones ring true for you and, and in which ways. And there's also um, maybe a sense of celebrating, celebrating something that we find meaningful, uh, wonderful, supportive. And uh, the act of celebrating in itself lifts up the heart and is joyful. So we had we had a lot of fun and pleasure a couple of days before the day before the day that the retreat started. That we happened to be walking through Denbury, the village at the top of the fields there, and saw these beautiful gladioli for sale out some, outside somebody's house, and had the thought those would be absolutely perfect for our retreat and for the shrine. And there's this tradition of offering, and when we do the chant of the dedication, this this. Uh, 
when it says we, we render with offerings our rightful homage, there's this tradition of offering candles, incense and flowers as something beautiful, a beautiful uh, the beautiful flowers, the fragrance of incense, which we don't do in here because you know, not, it's not often not helpful for people's, uh, physically for people, but uh, that's the tradition. And then the light or the, the warmth and the light of the candles. And there's a joyfulness and an uplift to the heart that comes from kind of letting your heart celebrate what you love. And when we build a refuge, as we were speaking about yesterday, uh, we have to take care of it. So the ref- you know, one meaning of a refuge is a shelter. And if you think of the shelters that we trust and appreciate in our life, they, they become, the more we take care of them, the more they become a shelter. You know, the more we take care of our living space or our home, the more it feels like a a nourishing and a safe place to retreat to. And it's the same with these refuges that we've spoken about. And one way we, we can remind ourselves to take care of them is symbolically through these kinds of gestures. And then we take care of them also inwardly uh, in, the, in the heart as a sense of a practice and a, you know, that we when we return to it, treat it with care and respect, it becomes something that, that becomes more and more meaningful and supportive to us. And the Buddha himself recognized the value of having things to um, practice this sense of devotion and reverence towards. So, you know, that he, he lived in a culture where there was a real... Um, tradition of venerating teachers and elders and so on. And he, when he was on his uh, path in search of awakening, he followed a couple of very well-known teachers of his time and kind of completed all their teachings to the extent that they asked him to, you know, join, join him, join them as co-teachers. And yet he was still not satisfied and he went on to look for his own method. And after after his awakening, he said, "It, you know, I feel like a loss that there's no teacher that as kind of my senior teacher that I can look up to and revere. What am I going to do?" And he said, "I I will revere the Dharma." And actually, we we kind of sometimes feel this sort of hesitancy about putting um, the Buddha as a person, a personality, or a figure on a pedestal. And when people did that in his lifetime and came to him, and there's, a, there's various encounters where people come to him and, and they, Master, Master, you know, and, and he said, why, why, are you, why are you chasing after this body here? You know, this is, not, this is not what I am. The point is that when you see me, you see the Dharma. You see the Dharma through me. It's not about venerating me. It's actually about venerating life and the truth of life and I'm simply somebody who points the way. But this idea of celebrating what's worthy of celebration, worthy of what's honour, this is something that he, he really praised. This is actually said to be a cause, one of the causes of the highest happiness. Because when we, 
um, gives something value and importance, uh, we take care of it. We use it to guide our life. So one of the things that um, is also said is that uh, the, the value of truth and truthfulness. One of the things that's most detrimental to awakening or to a spiritual path is to be careless about truthfulness or not have sufficient respect for truth. So it's also said that the Dharma holds those who uphold it from falling into delusion. And that's one of those sayings that you know, comes back to me because there are things that I, you know, I know when I'm veering off you know, the, the course of what I know to be true and one can go down this like you know indulging in a sense of vindictiveness or um yeah simply being a little bit dishonest with oneself about something and it always comes back to to bite us so w the more that we can um uphold what we know are our deepest values and what we know to be true the more that we make a refuge that protects ourselves So when we feel ourselves experiencing any of these kinds of flavors, these kinds of um, frames of mind of gratitude or appreciation or tenderness or care, just as in this poem about the, the father and the child, there's also a sense of freedom inside and a sense of well-being. Do you notice? You know, when you've accessed that, maybe sometimes even just playfully when I do the Qigong and put the body and the heart and the mind into a, into a place of feeling care, feeling tenderness, feeling contentment, then there's a, there's a freedom where I'm capable of a much more benevolent response to life. There's a sense of ease, there's a sense of well-being. And... It's from that place one is capable of generosity, of altruism, and able to more creatively respond to situations. And we're also, in that, in that frame or state of mind, we're also kind of available to a more responsive universe. It's like the world that's outside us is a mirror of the world that's inside. And when we are um, receptive, responsive, the world outside feels receptive and responsive too. And then the idea of, of prayer makes more, of, more sense. So a, also this question arises, you know, when we do these practices... It, it evokes a sense of prayer and prayerfulness. And what do we mean by prayer and prayerfulness? And there's another beautiful poem that I'd like to share. It's called Eagle Poem by Joy Harjo, who was um, the first Native American poet laureate of the United States. She says, to pray, you open your whole self to sky, to earth, to sun, to moon, to one whole voice that is you. And know there is more that you can't see, can't hear, can't know except in moments, steadily growing. 
and in languages that aren't always sound, but other circles of motion. Like eagle that Sunday morning over Salt River, circled in blue sky in wind, swept our hearts clean with sacred wings. We see you, see ourselves, that we must take the utmost care and kindness in all things. Breathe in knowing we are made of all this and breathe knowing that we are truly blessed because we were born and die soon within a true circle of motion like eagle rounding out the morning inside us. We pray that it will be done in beauty, in beauty. So to me, what this, this poem and what the um, poem's shoulders are evo evoking or inviting also is really the quality of metta, the quality of care and uh, benevolence towards life that is in this uh, heart quality of metta known as the Brahma Vihara or a divine abiding in the traditional teachings divine because it, it is a, uh, a heavenly state, a state of well-being. Yeah. But it's not something that's, that's otherworldly. So actually Naomi Shihab poems, uh, Naomi Shihab Nye's poem continues says about the father and the son. She says, we're not going to be able to live in this world if we're not willing to do what he's doing with one another. She says, the road will only be wide and the rain will never stop falling. So there's this invitation, this possibility to live in the world with the same quality of attentiveness, tenderness and care and reverence for life that this father has for his young son and you know in meta we often have there's the image of the mother caring for her child but I love this image of the father with the young son so if this quality of meta is cultivated and and established in the heart then we notice how our response to ourselves and to each other is different from when we, you know, stuck behind a, a different window. Yeah. If you you awake to this experience of feeling of a, a tenderness and a reverence for life, you have this sense of ease and well-being established in you. Then, when you hear somebody else in difficulty, or you find yourself in difficulty, even uh, the response can be one of compassion rather than harshness. So for example, you know, you, either you or your neighbor in the hall might be beset with feelings of restlessness. And, and uh, it, sometimes we can meet that with a real sense of, oh, you know, may this body be soothed or may, may, this, may, your, may your discomfort 
be soothed and I wish you well. And sometimes we meet it with a, <laughs> you know, stop bothering me. May my own discomfort stop bothering me. Will you stop bothering me with your fidgeting about and so on? And this is, you know, the, this is the other side. This is what happens when we encounter something difficult and the mind is not in this uh, place of metta or ease. So the difference between this quality of compassion, karuna or anukampa, this trembling together with, and uh, the quality of harshness. Or, you know, when we find somebody experiencing happiness or success, and our response, if we're in a, if, if we're in a good place, is one of, enjoying that, enjoying along with, rather than one of envy, you know. But often when we're feeling kind of depleted, when we don't have access to the framework of meta, the sense is you've got something and that means I'm in a worse off position, you know. And so much harm in the world is done through, uh, through envy and so much um, loss to ourselves, you know. We don't gain anything from feeling the experience of envy. We just deplete ourselves and we actually miss the opportunity to enjoy others' enjoyment. So it's actually thinking as we had the apple crumble for tea this evening. I wonder who got the most pleasure out of the apple crumble at tea. And there's a strong chance that it's the person who made it for everybody, actually. Have you ever been in that position? Yeah, I'm just thinking of uh, 50 causes for delight that your apple crumble creativity might have created versus, you know, the one of us who just kind of enjoyed a sweet treat and that was that and didn't really reflect. But if you happen to enjoy it and felt some upwelling of gratitude or a sense of, oh, isn't it nice for everybody that there's a treat? Notice how different that feels, how nourishing for the heart. Yeah. So this is, there's this whole possibility of taking delight in other people's happiness. Mm. Or... <coughs> when we encounter a situation that's really intractable or impossible in some ways. Yeah. Um, so that, that was mudita, the quality of appreciative joy. And uh, the other quality that I want to point to, uh, which is of course familiar to many of you, is the quality of equanimity. When we encounter these situations that are totally intractable, and we all have these in our lives, maybe in our families, in our work situations in the world around us. There's so much that is a mess beyond anything that we can personally directly control. And we have different ways that the heart can respond to that. If the heart is relaxed and resourced, then we're able to see what's happening and to see the ways in which we might be able to help and make a difference. And to um, let be around the ways in which there's nothing that we can do. 
And rather than fall into a space of overwhelm, which is very easy for all of us to do at the moment because there's so much that is so problematic that we feel really helpless around. It's very easy to feel into, fall into a space of overwhelm. It's also very easy to fall into a space of indifference. It's just all too much. I'm not going to go there. I can't bother. And that's not equanimity either. Equanimity actually is a quality of Kuan Yin as well as compassion. Quality of equanimity, one who sees and hears and responds to the cries of the world at ease. Because she sees the whole picture and she sees the ways that um, causes and conditions are unfolding. So I just wanted to point to some of these heart qualities of devotion, of care, of gratitude and appreciation, of generosity and these divine abidings of uh, kindness, metta, compassion, appreciative joy and equanimity. As you know, window frames, it's good to look out through. Windows, it's good to throw open in our tower and that it takes work and training to cultivate these kinds of habits of mind. And I think lots of us practicing insight meditation, we kind of want insight to be a quick fix, you know, which is to, to, to see something and then uh, job done. At least that was where, how I came to practice when I, when I began. I sort of thought, I will have this insight and then everything will be from there. But actually what insight does for us is it, it frees us up to make more skillful choices about what we want to cultivate and develop in our mind. It actually makes everything lighter. It makes us more agile in terms of training the heart and mind gives us motivation, it gives us clarity of purpose. But building the muscles of these kinds of beautiful qualities in the heart is actually a lifetime's work. So one of the things we can do is consciously to orient to these qualities uh, over and over again. And um, we do that by training ourselves to appreciate them, to notice them when they arise. You know, notice when I have an experience of gratitude or an experience of generosity around something. Notice when I'm touched by kindness. Notice when I feel care. Notice when I feel that care is blocked. And actually what needs attending to then. And... Uh, one of the things that we'd like to offer, we're going to um, this evening introduce uh, one, possibly two uh, more chants that are about orienting to, these to some of these qualities. So these four um, divine abidings of kindness, compassion, um, appreciative joy and equanimity. And... Uh, the one that we will do first is the May I Abide in Wellbeing chant. But I'll talk about that a little more uh, when we come back and do some chanting. Mm.
So just take a pause. A man crosses the street in rain, stepping gently, looking two times north and south, because his son is asleep on his shoulder. No car must splash him, no car drive too near to his shadow. This man carries the world's most sensitive cargo, but he's not marked. Nowhere does his jacket say fragile handle with care. His ear fills up with breathing. He hears the hum of a boy's dream deep inside him. We're not going to be able to live in this world if we're not willing to do what he's doing with one another. The road will only be wide. The rain will never stop falling. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.